Hey, Zero Block 30 listeners, you can find us every Tuesday and Friday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Pride members can also listen ad-free on Amazon Music. For us, golf is simple. It's a chance to get out and have some fun with our friends. But inevitably, little things have a way of ruining it. The group ahead is taking forever. You can't find the fairway with a map. And the Bev cart is nowhere to be found. And the best way to make a bad day better is Fireball Whiskey. You get their nips, the little shooters. They are great. Makes bad day way, way, way better. Make sure to grab the new Fireball Birdie Shot Club. It's literally a golf club filled with Fireball Nip. Put it in your bag. It'll fit right in that side pocket. Drink Fireball Nips and have a great time on the golf course. Uh, my body is stiff. My body is a chapel. I doubt that. My body is a wonderland. And there's a lot of there are a lot of priests in it. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm. A lot mm. of bushes outside. It's been a big chapel. place of worship. Mm. <laughs> I'm talking about the family. <laughs> 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 You're done. Oh. <laughs> Oops. It is a Friday edition, finally. This is the week that doesn't Woo. end. This week has felt like fucking this year. And I'm just, I saw Frank the Tank talking about it, how he is sick of 2020. I am too. I'm just ready. Get it out of here. Get out of 2020. You and, get out. No, the worst thing about out. it is that this is a year that, we won't forget like you. I think if it was like 1993 or whatever, that's a year that you forget. Cause it's an off year. Mm. 2020 is a year that will always be in your brain just because it's such a clean number too. You yeah. know, I wish everything was great. And none of this is happening, but this is going to give us a lot of old person street cred. Oh, when, yeah. when the God. grandkids are like, what was the great virus like? And you're like, well, let me sit down. Let me tell you about 2020. Let you know? me tell you about, we had to podcast remotely. <laughs> yeah, we had to. There was a curfew in New York. Yeah, it's going to be a doozy as an old person. It is because my great-grandmother, a uh, little pre-show chat, my great-grandmother, which, by the way, my two great-grandmas, have I ever told you what I called my great-grandmas? No, no but, but, I I, but I'm going to hate it. Go ahead. No, you're not going to hate it at all. So I had... And this is courtesy of my dad. My dad actually gave them both these nicknames. So my everybody in my family is really small. I don't know how I ended up my size, but everybody's small. My dad's 5'7", my mom's 5'3", my older sister's like 4'10 and a half. Um, Milkman. My, my, yeah, my, top, my tallest grandfather was like 5'4". One had polio. The other one was a preacher. My tallest grandma's like 5'2". And then I'm six foot and 200 pounds. <laughs> but I look just like my dad, so there's no milkman shit going on i just don't look like a vicious alcoholic (laughs) (laughs) but he would call my grandmother one of them was really small she was like four nine and he always called her little mama and then the other one she was like five foot one and she was big mama so (laughs) we had big mama and little mama were their houses well big mama lives still in a little town called mayo florida and in mayo it sounds exactly like what you would picture it was right by the swanee river where you know the song wait on yonder down the swanee river Mm -hmm. that's exactly where she lived at and there would be wild springs like you go into the woods you can get your water from there you could swim in there it was constantly like a cool 67 degrees beautiful and they had two houses on their property they lived in a tiny little farming community and one of their houses was the house that they had during the depression and they had moved out of that and moved into a new house. Well, me and my cousins, 
we one day we were hanging out. We saw this old house. It didn't mean anything to us. We didn't live there. We'd never really been inside. It was just an old dilapidated house that was on the property. We were picking up rocks and throwing the rocks at the old house, breaking windows and things like that, just because that's what little kids do. Oh, you know, like yeah. if you see something oh. old and you get the chance to break it, you're going to do it. My uncle came out one day, saw us doing it. I thought he was going to murder us on the site because we were throwing bricks at the house and shit like that. He was like, this is not what you do. And I was like, no, it isn't. You look murderous. <laughs> the whole wrath of God came down what on start, me. Well, what started I don't know that story? I started with that story. Yeah. What, where was that? What? I kind of got lost. I didn't know where we were going. Start. I got very lost in there. <laughs> little mama and big mama. There you go. Little All mama right. and big mama. All Shout right. To All right. Let's get going. Because today we have five rounds in the magazine. Round number one, a North Carolina woman passed away this week at the age of 90, thus ending a 155-year-long pension from her father's time in the, wait for it, folks. That's right. The fucking Civil War is where she got those benefits from. How is that possible? Well, the old vet was 83 when she was born good old man there i mean he just stuck around that's some good genes with the the dad sticking around till 83 and eight, having, well, having no. some sex at 83 yeah he lived past that but at 83 he was like let's fucking go and he had you kids. know he had to be pissed like oh what in the hell yeah, imagine yeah, yeah, starting yeah. over starting that process over like chaps i think you would even be annoyed at your age if you had to start over with a baby imagine 83 oh. forget well, it well we had a scare a little while ago where <laughs> And I've had a vasectomy, so obviously I don't want any kids. And But occasionally, like, something can happen where you just have a sneaky swimmer that comes through every now and then, and it'll happen. Yeah, Michael and Phelps. we thought we did, and I was so scared, man, because McCartney was probably six at the time. <laughs> and I was like, I'm starting over again, because Kelsey was seven when McCartney was born. I like, I'm going to be raising kids till I'm, like, 60, man. It's going to be terrible. Mm -hmm. That's round number one. Round yeah. number two, one of the most cringeworthy military love texts. Let us to tell you about the worst love stories you've ever witnessed in uniform. From a motorcycle wedding to Jody drama, the answers did not disappoint, just like always. Round number three, a, a rifle-toting veteran was arrested this week after dressing up and blending in with the National Guard. Crowd, <laughs> sorry, you want to start though. Round number three, a rifle-toting veteran was arrested this week after dressing up and blending in with a National Guard crowd control formation in Los Angeles. Stay tuned to hear what this has to do with Jurassic Park. Hold, Hold on, on to, to your, your butts. butts. Round number it. four. You couldn't see it, but we both had cigarettes dangling out of our mouths when we said that, too. Mm -hmm. Hold on to, to your, your butts. butts. <laughs> oh, yeah. Round number four, Senator Martha McSally, who is not a sad sack Sally when oh. we interviewed her. She joined us to talk about her book, Life as an A-10 Fighter Pilot, and how she sued the bejesus out of Secretary Rumsfeld while she was just a lowly field gray officer. And finally, round number five, the one that I think many of you are going to be waiting for, call sign chaos. Caused a little chaos on social media. General Mattis blasted his former boss by saying that President Trump is a, quote, danger to the Constitution. That's kind of big news, right? So it, it deserved its own round. And all that today is going to be brought to you by our good friends at Shady Rays. Cons is wearing some shady grades on his dome piece right Love now. Love him. Looking like a right fielder. He's put them on, um, even though he knows I can't stand it when he <laughs> podcasts in sunglasses. I don't like that. But Shady Rays are great. If you are going to podcast in any type of sunglasses, make sure that it's Shady Rays. 
They are high quality shades for less than expensive brands. They have the best warranty, which is very, very important. If you aren't buying stuff that has a good warranty, you're a fucking idiot, man. I don't want to do like free ad stuff in the middle of their ad read, but I messed up big time with some of the tools that I made because there's some out there that have lifetime warranties. Why would you not do that? Anything with a lifetime warranty, you gotta do it. I mean, these, you can get a lost replacement for free. Anything like Shady that, it's Rays. awesome. If you're not buying Shady sunglasses Rays. with a warranty like ours, you're a fucking idiot. You're a fucking bitch. <laughs> yeah. Sure, they're going to love that, but it's true. It's I, like uh, Ricky Bobby when he does, if you don't chew Big Red, fuck you. And by the way, it does work because I've lost a couple, I've fucked up with a couple pairs now, and it's incredibly easy. It's awesome. And you don't even so. have to go to your first sergeant. Like, yeah, oh, right. first sergeant, yeah. oh, this recruit boss is, uh, oh. They're great, yeah. Sunglasses. Shady Rays is an independent sunglasses company. They're not just some big corporation that overcharges for shades. You're going to get all those good deals for just 48 bucks. You can go get a pair. It's so cheap. Use the promo code ZBT for 50% off two or more pairs at ShadyRays.com. You buy one, you get one free. You get two pairs for the low, low cost of 48 Even those lowly recruits, whenever it's the 1st and the 15th, whenever that rolls around, you can afford 48 bucks for two pairs of Shady Rays. Only available at ShadyRays.com, where you can find all their newest and best shades. Make sure that you use ZBT50 for 50% off when you get two or more pairs. It's going to be a great deal for you. Let's get started with the old show. Friday, this has been a long, long week in our nation's history. It's just one of those banner weeks that you're going to look back and realize that this was a turning point, this was a big-time moment in the country's history. You, know you guys feel that way? You know what made the week even longer by a mile? Hmm. That it was your birthday. No, that brick story you told at the start of the show. Uh, <laughs> Jesus. Oh, my God. Oh, is that not a good story? Oh, you guys didn't enjoy that? Oh, my God. I have a couple other Big Mama stories that I could tell. Anyway, well, yeah, you, long uh, write week. write those down, send them <laughs> yeah. over, we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll uh, you just check them out beforehand. Him. Yeah. Text them to Big us. Big Mama always said that whenever she was cooking, like, ch- chicken and dumplings, that they were a little bit sweeter because she'd just stick her finger in it. Mm. Cool. She's made of sugar. But yeah, Chaps, you're right. This was, it just seemed like a very exhausting week, but between everything that uh, went on uh, within our country, and then it seemed as though that just played out tenfold via social media. It just, it it seemed like it was exhausting. Long days. It really is. And yes, you're right. It was my birthday. I'd like to talk about that endlessly. No, real real quick. Hold on. No, no, seriously. Like, how, how did you feel about having a birthday during quarantine? I, you know, I'm at the age where it's like, who get like, I, I woke up and forgot it was my birthday, to be honest with you. And I was like going about my day. I actually didn't even think about it till there was a phone call. Chaps, in the morning for breakfast, he had sent over these really lovely slices of cake and these, uh, all this really good shit. So thank you to Chaps, this chocolate mousse espresso cake. And uh, it was a delight. So thank you. That's kind of Chaps is the one who reminded me it was my birthday. And then later in the afternoon, somebody sent me... I got the reminder from your dad. Can't disappoint you. That's true. He did slide in Chaps' DMs to say, don't forget about Kate's birthday. Oh my God, I'm 34 years old. Why is he still doing that? Love him. Uh, And then later in the afternoon, somebody sent a James Brown impersonator to my door. That was interesting. Open my door. Chaps, that wasn't you? No. No, that wasn't me. At full Now I'm a little little concerned that people have your address. (laughs) Well, Kate said it today on radio. We had By to have accident. Avery bleep it out. She like gave her a partner number and everything. Yeah, I opened my door and there's a guy in all red bell bottoms, like almost like an Elvis with the platform shoes, singing a whole song with like the words changed for me. And it was, 
it was a thing. It was a thing. So yeah, it was a treat. It was nice. It was whatever. I stayed to myself. Kept quiet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've had a, I've had a great, like minus all the news, obviously, but like professionally and having a sense of where you feel like you're doing something in the world, not even really in the world, but you're doing something that's worthwhile, that's meaningful. I've had a meaningful week. Like I've, I've talked to Woody Williams. I got to talk to him on Monday. Then I talked to another uh, Vietnam veteran er, that you'll hear on Monday. I talked to Jim Dale, uh, Jim Dunn, about his story and receiving four distinguished flying crosses and a bronze star and a purple heart and air medal with a combat V all in one tour of duty, which is That's absurd. insane. Yeah. And he had never talked to anybody about like what he had done. And he opened up to me about it. And that's going to be a great interview for you guys to hear on Monday. We talked to Senator McSally, who's going to be on the show today. We've had just a, a good week of interviews to see different thoughts, different perspectives from different people. I also spent some time talking to a, a guy named Dylan who's going to come on the show. He's one of the writers for 68 Whiskey and was telling about his time in the Air Force and how he got attached to an Army unit and did some things that he wasn't expecting to do and how that goes into his Hollywood life that he lives now where he's writing on TV shows and working side by side with Ron Howard just to see what different veterans are doing in different areas. And Dylan is a, a black guy. and He's very attached to the Black Lives um, matter movement. He's doing all different types of things, being an advocate. So seeing veterans in different areas of life and the different stages of their life has been awesome to see that we can affect policy and change and do things the right way. Even to the point where before we started the podcast, I sent you guys a video. There's the National Guard. Obviously, we know the National Guard is in Washington, D.C. right now. And they're there doing their stopping um, protesters from getting out of hand, I guess. And they're they're there to do what cops and National Guardsmen do in that situation. Well, one guy that was there very clearly to me was a veteran. Mm-hmm. And he's a, he was a black guy at the front of the formation going right up to where the wall is for the National Guard to have their riot shields and things like that. And they're in formation. Clear, clear as day to me. There's no doubt that this guy was either a crusty sergeant or a, a staff sergeant, or maybe an E7. I doubt E7, though, because whenever he's going up to the group, he's going up to the National Guard group that's standing there, because, I mean, these guys have some training, but it's not a ton in mm-hmm, things yeah. like this. Riot control is very difficult to do. We used to have to do it a lot in Japan, or whenever they would have protests and things like that. Riot control is not an easy job. Right. And so when they, the guy's walking up there, he's like, hey, there's a gap here. Fix this gap. Fix this gap. Fix <laughs> this gap. He's like, you move over. Hey, yeah. Square, he's basically coaching him. He's like, what's the deal with this? You don't see this? You don't see this space? Any space. Any one of these people. We can just fly right through the space. Fix this gap. Fix this gap. Fix this gap. I'm like, I love it. Because you know he just want to be like, okay, I know ISAFs aren't some shit. When I'm yeah. talking to you, you fucking listen. Open yeah. your bitch ass mouth when I'm speaking to you. Do you understand that? <laughs> so I just imagine him doing that as he goes along. And I'm thinking that's a beautiful example of how the protester protest protectors should be where you're out there you're not out there to hurt the the cops or the national guard you're out there to make your voice heard that's the constitutionally protected right that you have that is what we guarantee with our blood whenever we sign up that is what america is about that we go out there and we help each other out and we voice our opinions absolutely I just got kind of fired up there. No, 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 that's okay. I mean, it, you're right. No, it is It is nice to see because we, we've seen a lot of other videos go the other way. So it was very refreshing to see a video that ended up in a positive manner. And I like, I, anytime you can say, okay, you, come here. Come here, you. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> what is it called? A phalanx? Like a phalanx? A phalanx when you link uh, shields together? Yeah. A phalanx. A phalanx? Yeah. So he's helping them 
link their phalanx closer together. So that's a, mm-hmm. that was a fun video. Because if you don't, it's more like a phalanx. Exactly. Ooh. Oh, oh my goodness. Oh yeah. my goodness. All right, let's hop into some of the stories of the week because there is a lot. There's a lot of stories that um, are going around. One is starts off in North Carolina. Lady, 90 years old. What's going on with that, Kate? Yeah, so the last person to receive a pension from the U.S. Civil War has died at the age of 90. And I had to read that. I was like, the, the what war? The Civil War? Well, real um, quick, when did the Civil War end? Uh, go, okay, go. Go, okay, go. 1865? There you Nailed go. It. Yeah. Nailed That's, it. Okay, That's 1865. Two yeah. centuries ago. <laughs> two centuries ago. So 1865 is when it ended. And the daughter of someone who fought in it was still alive and getting a pension. So uh, Irene Triplett, daughter of Civil War veteran Mose Triplett. That's such an oh, old-timey Mose. name. Old Mose. Mosey <laughs> oh, on Mose. over Mose. Uh, oh, Mose. So I, Irene Triplett, daughter of Civil War veteran Mose Triplett, died Sunday in Wilkesboro, North Carolina, following complications after surgery. According to the newspaper, she received a pension of $73.13 a month from the VA. After, and because of her Wait father's- a minute. From North Carolina? Is that where they were from? Uh, it just says it's from the VA. This is because this is weird to me. Like, I want to go back for a second because if it's North Carolina, yeah, did no, we North give Carolina. VA rights to the Confederacy? No, no, no. Well, let me tell the story because there's, okay. there's a whole story to it that <laughs> explains about, it. Yes. I'm about to be triggered. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, no. Okay. So, according to the newspaper, $73.13 a month from the VA for her father's service, which began more than 155 years ago. So, hear me out on this before we say it. Okay. According to the journal, Private Triplett enlisted in the Confederate 53rd North Carolina Infantry Regiment in May 1862 before defecting to a Mm. Union regiment two years later. In 1924, when he was 83 years old, he married 34-year-old Alita Hall. Oh, you old dog, you. Oh, you old dog. You old sailor, you. (laughs) You old some bitch. Uh, You old so-and-so. You old rap stallion. Oh, you old (laughs) minx. You old rascal. Little minx. Uh... Yeah, in 1924, when he was 83, he married a 30... I just turned 34. I, this would be like me, right now, marrying an 83-year-old man, which I would do for the right price, swear to God. Anyways, if you came on the show one day and you're like, I'm getting married, I'm like, to who? And you're like, fucking Moe's. I'd be like, what? <laughs> Gotta go to Moe's, oh yeah. Go- anyway, okay, wow. Anyway, Moe's triplet. Katie Moe's sitting in the tree. Yes. K-I-S-S-I-N-G. So, old Mrs. Triplet over here. Anyways, couldn't couldn't possibly be because Moe's triplet died at the age of 92 in 1938. And Irene Triplett, his daughter, then lived a pretty tough life. As a child, she told the journal in 2014, she was beaten by her parents and her teachers. Her father died. Her mom moved all over the place in Wilkes County, North Carolina. They lived in a poor house. And Medicaid and her small Civil War era pension helped pay for her residence in care homes throughout the year. So you got to leave with that, Kate. Now I feel so, bad for you. Yeah, now I feel like we're just sorry, joking and making light of this. But no, this woman had a very, very tough life. Uh, but... The, the pension kind of helped float her through in the end, which, but, you know, so $73. So I didn't realize that anybody in this country was still getting a Civil War pension. That's crazy to me that, I mean, what a wild thing. And I didn't well, know who this. Is it that, who is it? Isn't it Taft that has two living yes. nephews still? Yeah. I think so. Yeah, well, one it, of them. Yeah. 
one of them's in the military, right? And it's like my grandfather, or no, I'm thinking Teddy Roosevelt's grand, one of his grandkids is in that. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, so Anyways. I, this made me do a little googling. <laughs> For Union soldiers, the pension system began after after the war in 1862. That doesn't make sense. That's okay. Keep it rolling. Okay, I must have written that wrong. Um, oh, oh, began a year after the war started. Pardon me. Right. Began in 1862, a year yep. after the war started. Soldiers who were disabled as a result of their service were eligible for pensions, and the amount depended on their rank and injury. Dependents also could get the pensions, uh, but nobody got rich off of them. A totally 100% dis- disabled private got $8 a month for the first pension system. Uh, so I looked at it, and $8 today would be $210. So picture wow. 100% disabled and only getting $210 a month. Like, that Man. is comparatively mm-hmm. really not much to live by there. Also, it had me thinking, can you imagine the VA system back then? Like, how do they even find you to get you? How did they, how did they pay people back then? Right. There, what do you do? Yeah. Pony Express. Was there Pony, they Pony Express in it? And how did they figure out where you lived? How did you have to wait? How did you have to prove your status? Because I imagine... Well, one good thing about Civil War Google, if you're going to the VA, you don't have to wait on hold on phone for a while because there's no phone. That's good true. Point. There's no. Instead, they make you stand in a line, but they play music to you. So socially distanced, like, of course. Yeah, socially distanced. <laughs> but yeah, so back then, just a totally... I don't know how it did. That's something that I'd be interested in doing some research in. How- well, that's why I said that it'd be okay to murder somebody if you're in, like, the 1800s. Like, this because you, nobody, nobody would ever know. Nobody no, you're would right. know. I bet this happened a lot. I don't know. Just mosey to the next town with Mose. Like, you and Mose <laughs> going to the next town, and that's it. Yeah, well, also, so I was just, I kind of went down a rabbit hole as per usual, pension stuff, and this I didn't know. According to the History Channel, one in ten Union soldiers was African American, and when they began signing up for the Union Army in 1863... They were paid 10 bucks a month while white soldiers got at least 13. And then they got uniform allowances and all this stuff that black people didn't get. And they protested. Black regiments refused to accept their inferior wages. Finally, pressure from abolitionist congressmen coupled with the courage of black soldiers persuaded Congress to rectify the pay structure. So in 1864, black soldiers finally received equal pay that was retroactive to their enlistment date. And for many, this meant they had enough money to send home to their families, which was a big mm, deal. So great. a lot of interesting old-timey pension stuff that I didn't, I did not know. I did not know that. So also, I have a question. <laughs> well, my ki- so this woman was getting her dad's pension. Will my kids, if I ha- have a disability check, like, will they get it too? It depends. Now the law has changed. It used, it's, that's a grandfathered kind of law oh, where okay, you okay. used to. But now it's where until they're 18 or until they're 21 for medical insurance and things like that. Uh, but your spouse will, like your spouse would for the remainder of their national yeah. natural life. Well, rest in peace to Irene Triplett. Hopefully her afterlife is much more happy and peaceful than, than what she had in the real world. But crazy story. 83 years old, getting it on. I didn't know, you see, like, what was the woman who married, she, uh, rest in peace, Anna Nicole Smith? Yeah, yes. Nicole Smith, the old yeah. Man. yeah. Like, could, could he really get a boner? Like, you think- I think so. Old people at nursing home are, like, fucking like rabbits. That's the yeah. highest per capita of sexually transmitted diseases in nurse- nursing homes. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you this much for sure, then. When I'm old, I'm fucking. Okay. <laughs> Hell yeah. All right. Super diverse. I wonder what like an eighty-three-year-old's nut looks like. Like, is it the oh, same? Oh man, no, dude. It's comes out like dust. Thick, oh, thicker. I thought you were talking about their nuts, like their balls. Oh no, saying. those are dangly. Yeah, they're real far down. Some danglers. Yeah, do <laughs> they you taught think me how to like, dangle. You think it's when it comes, you hear this sound? 
comes so out. I'm saying it comes out as dust. Right. No, yes. I think it's kind of like squeezing toothpaste out of oh, the tube. Oh, God, no. No. <laughs> that it just looks like you're about to start cocking a no. shower. Oh, <laughs> fuck. Fuck. You guys ever see the, the Civil War movie <laughs> Glory with Matthew Broderick, Denzel, Mm-mm. and no. uh, Morgan Freeman? No. I highly recommend that one. Very, very good. Good All transition. Right, I'll add that to the list. <laughs> yeah. let's, let's move on to round number two. Um, round number two comes to us from where? Us. It us, comes yeah. To us this from is, us. Oh, this is ours. That's right. Yep. So we have a little bit of, because one of the, our favorite things is military love stories i Mm. think that they're just so fantastic they happen all the time Mm -hmm. and i didn't point it out senator mcsally had the same thing when she was a young one she was married and divorced as a young one i was gonna bring that out (laughs) it's just part of except for cons what a loser yeah i have the stories i have the stories that just didn't involve me they involved my soldiers but what i find fascinating about all these soldiers they're probably some guidance yeah, yeah, they, they mm-hmm. definitely could have. But I, I wasn't one to give love guidance at 23, 24, trust me. Uh, but what I find fascinating is that in the military, there's like six to eight types of love stories that can occur. And then that's it. It's like every everyone falls into one of those boxes and everyone has the same six to eight stories. It's like all what? the same. There's, there's the stripper, fell in love yes. with the stripper. I swear <laughs> to God, that is 110% true. I would ask my Marine later, where are you going? Well, Brandy broke down on the side of I five, blah blah. Brandy from where? The Purple Church. Oh God, damn it! How long have you been seeing her? Like you know that. Um, definitely the stripper one. Definitely another one stealing each other's girlfriends or boyfriends. Yeah, like stealing each other. Like that's another one. Married your high school sweetheart right out of boot camp. High school sweetheart right out Mm -hmm. of boot camp. Uh, Hairdresser or somebody who provides some sort of service to the military out in town. Whether Mm -hmm. it's a master guns his daughter. A master guns his daughter. You're right. There's like, a, we'll have to sort out the categories, but you're right. You fall into one of these things. Um, or you're a woman like me. You know that the odds are in your favor because there's only a few of you and it's like shooting fish in a barrel. You're like, I'm taking the hot fish because I can now. And then you do that and then you get divorced. That's got to be empowering. Oh, for sure, man. You feel like a, hmm. the, the, the deployment tent thing is real. I felt like a hottie boomalotti. <laughs> anyways so we, we got a really good submission and the, there's a text uh, chain and it says uh wait 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 wait, wait, wait. go ahead go ahead cons you okay. be yes. the blue yes. chaps you be the black text so okay. read this text message wait did you just ask me to marry you i mean i'm gonna do that in person baby girl to make it cute and stuff but yes OMG, I'm almost crying. <laughs> Why, baby girl? Because I'm so happy. Good, baby girl. That's my job to make you happy. <laughs> <laughs> I just had to take my headphones off. I couldn't listen to him say good, baby girl, because I wanted to die. I literally wanted to die. My face is like purple. Oh, God. <laughs> Gross. Good, baby girl. Oh, yeah. Good job to make you happy. Ooh, baby girl. Ooh, baby girl. <laughs> lock the door and turn the lights down low. Let me get that caulk. Get my caulk gun out. <laughs> I'm, Daddy's about to put some toothpaste on you. Oh, God. Grab your brush. Anyway, so yeah, this is the creepiest. And so at the top of it, she says, so it's official. I'm going to be a military wife. And then she posted this text conversation. 
where he kind of shittily asks her over the phone, over a text message to marry her. And then, I wish you would have went further down the baby girl thing, like where it, went, oh. where it goes from baby girl to like, you tiny little baby infant, you yeah, little you embryo. Yeah, you tiny little baby, you little, uh, <laughs> little egg newly. Yeah, so anyway, the whole thing, just very creepy. And to me, if you're saying like, baby girl, baby, you don't know like how to relationship and this is your idea of how to relationship <laughs> is to call someone baby girl all the time, like whatever. And sprinkle it in for a fine Baby seasoning. Baby girl is fucking gross, no matter yeah. what. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just, sucking yeah. gross. And especially so, multiple times in the same text chain there. That's yeah. just, ugh. How many times? Every single text he said it. Yeah, exactly. He, said it he gave single, her three baby girls. Oh, God. Anyway, so one zero, baby girl. Everybody knows the rules. Yeah, one baby girl. So if we were talking about starting to call, like, call her daddy has their daddy gang. What if we're like ZBT? The, yeah. <laughs> our followers are the. Anyways, we asked, what is the most cringeworthy love story you've seen play out in the military? The girls had some good answers for this. <laughs> yeah, maybe our had some good answers. Thank you. Uh, Everybody anyway. say thanks. 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 Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I answered one. One of my first, and I think I've talked about him before, but, you know, we said every unit has, like, the smelly kid. Every unit has the kid that's always screwing up or whatever, for whatever reason. And we had this Marine in our unit who was consistently jacked up, like, constantly failing room inspections. If we all got fucked over, it was usually because of something he did. And we always all were getting punished for him because nobody could get this kid to get his shit together. And so he failed room inspection one day. And he also, he did something else. And his wedding was that weekend. And one of our other Marines in front of the staff sergeant, like, said, I'm not going to your wedding, dude. Fuck that. And our our staff sergeant, like, bing, like a light bulb went off in his head. He's like, actually, you're all going to his wedding. And you, we're going to have an alphas inspection in the parking lot before you walk into the church. You all got to wear your you all got to wear your alphas. And it was the How middle of something. And you are all going to this wedding. And so it was like punishment to have to go. Which to is this not kid's a lawful wedding. order. No, no, it's not. And we did it. We didn't know we're idiots. <laughs> right. So we did it. We're like, all, OK, I got to help staffs our move. Fuck it. Yeah, so the, <laughs> yes, the um. This is like, uh, as Lance Corporals, we're working construction sites for free on weekends out in the like, yeah. 29 Palms for a gunny. You're like, oh, okay. Well, you know here. Gunny said so. So we're in our alphas. Full-time job. <laughs> the wedding. The wedding. I'll never take this uniform off. <laughs> the wedding was at Bikers for Christ headquarters in Oceanside, California. As expected. As expected. The wedding. He had only met her like a month before. He... All the materials, all the crosses, all the whatever, the walls was all made out of motorcycle parts. The pastor was wearing like... That's a nice motorcycle. Yeah, that's a nice motorcycle. <laughs> the pastor was wearing like leather and A motorcycle with a baptism pool in the middle? Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> she walked down the aisle to Sticks. It was so... What it was, song? What song? Because shout out to Sticks. Oh, oh my God. Yes. Are you serious? I swear to God, hand to God. And Baby so, girl. Baby girl. <laughs> baby girl, baby girl. So it's the families in the front, and they both look like they don't want to be there. They both look like nightmare fuel. They're shaking their heads. So it's a row of, like, five people in the front, nobody else, and then this little group clump of 15 in their alphas. <laughs> and it wasn't huge. It was so awkward. So she walks down. He walks up to one of the guys right before the wedding starts and goes, I forgot to think of, like, a best man. Can one of you just come up here and be my best man? He, like, grabbed one wow. of them to be his best man at the last minute. That's kind of sad. And that is sad. The whole, I mean, the, the whole, whole thing, thing is sad. Was During, so the vows, he, he adjusted the Rifleman's Creed 
So he was like, this is my wife. There, there are many like her, but this one is mine. And this was, he tried to make a joke. He's like, without my wife or without me, my wife is useless. Without my wife, I am okay, but she is still useless. Like, those were his, that was his little joke in his vows to her. Oh, that's, that's yeah. super romantic. And then the pastor went on this rant about the time he dropped acid in D.C. on the mall. <laughs> Meanwhile, we're all sitting there sweating our dicks off and our alphas like, what the Afterwards, our staff sergeant was like, "My bad." <laughs> like, Oops, that was that was fucked. Oops. Afterwards, they tried to ride off on a motorcycle together. This is no offense. She was extremely heavy, lady. Like none take pro- probably over three hundred. They couldn't they couldn't take off the way they wanted to. It wasn't working out. Oh, it got so, yeah. It was like the whole thing was like, oh my god. So anyway, you got to get her a sidecar. You got to get her sidecar. They're now divorced. They didn't Imagine last that very visual. long. Shocker. I believe he got caught on MySpace hitting up other, I don't know. It's a whole thing. Anyways, he well, goes MySpace by- will get you. You sneaky put somebody in your top eight. Next thing you know, they're taking yeah. them to Bone Town. I, so I checked back in with one of my, my Marine buddies to be like, did I just dream that or all these details correct before I put it in the thing? And he was like, oh yeah. He added a couple more details that I forgot. I forgot that the guy goes by the name Bubba Clam now. Goes oh, by the name Bubba Clam. That was Bubba Clam that you sent. That was Bubba Clam. That was Bubba wow. Clam. So now he's been out for a long time, was kind of like, sure, he's a lovely person, but the shipper of the unit. And he's one of those guys now that wears the full flak and holds the rifle and does all these videos where he's oh, like, yeah. Marine Corps, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, really? Back you, in my core. You're the Dude, reason you got we married were... at a motorcycle place. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so that was my story. There's a couple more. Sorry, that was so long, but it's just so ingrained in my head. Apology accepted. Dildo, <laughs> Dildo Baggins. So what's the most cringeworthy love stories? Dildo Baggins. AKA the Faptizer. What a great group of names this guy has. He said all of them, literally all of them. He's not wrong. This one, Red Wolfson said, dated this girl for a few months who said she was divorced. She got into an argument with her roommate one day who then told me that she was still married. Her E7 husband was in Afghanistan coming home soon. My E4 ass got the hell out of there. Corey oh my was God. Jody. Oh, mm-hmm. now I have a question for you, a moral question. At this point, you're an E4, he's an E7, but he's a fellow Marine. Do you reach out to him and say, hey, I've been fucking your wife? No. <laughs> no. no. What? You most certainly do not. You just Absolutely get out of there not. and hope your name is never mentioned. Well, you have to switch the word. Pardon me. Uh, hey, buddy, your wife was fucking me. No. Nope. <laughs> okay. Anyway, I so was you getting just... pegged by your wife. I feel wild. like, wouldn't you want to know? I feel like you should tell him. Yeah, somebody else can do it. That's not you. No way. Yeah. So Thomas Jenkins said, first duty station, we had a very religious 01. So brand new boot lieutenant connect with a woman in the Philippines that he went on leave to marry. He spent his entire savings to fly four hours from Japan. I was an E3 and it was like watching a rich person gamble on a game they didn't understand. I've, I would imagine I'm like watching an officer do that shit is like, hey, that's our enlisted thing. Stop yeah. it. That's our yeah. thing. <laughs> well, we're, let me be clear. Officers are not immune to this type of thing because you have to remember most of the time officers are young, very, very young when they get commissioned. So yeah. they are not immune to making poor life decisions at do all. Do you have any friends who did anything like that? Who like went off and married really quick or did Come like... Come back to West Point married? Yeah. I, uh-huh. I, I will say I have friends who are on marriage number two and some in some cases marriage number three. So there's hope for me. Love yes. it. This one. And so I was thinking, oh, all the cringeworthy stories we see fellow service members do, blah, blah. I would imagine that there's a lot of civilians out there who are like, oh, I can tell you horror stories about dating a military person. I imagine. Oh, it's my fair. God. Yeah. So this girl, uh, Laura, said 
My own ex, who was in the Navy, proposed to me last fall and something didn't feel right, so I called it off. Two days later, he was engaged to his ex because he couldn't stand the thought of being alone with a deployment coming up. I wish them all the happiness in the world. Like, good luck to the lady he wound up marrying when he was about to marry. And then somebody replied, stunt double said, ha, my ex married a cocktail waitress like five minutes after he went home on leave. Who knows where they are today? So, like, I imagine, too, on the civilian side, it's like, oh, my God. Anyways, a lot of good stories there. Uh, a lot of people talking about how their roommates getting married on, like, post-AIT and their dorky Tradoc dress blues and all that shit. Like, just, uh, it's an endless, oh, babies in the barracks, kids in the barracks, like, please, babysitting. Please read, like, please read this one from Aaron Bronson. Yeah, okay. One of my boots started dating this stripper and always brought her back to the barracks. And one day I was on duty and he was in his room with, like, three little kids. And I asked him what he was doing. And I guess, guess the stripper asked him to babysit her kids. Later found out she was on a date with his roommate and they oh took my God. and they took his car to go out. His roommate and the stripper wound up getting married. I switched room uh, units after that, but I heard they were married for like the weekend or something crazy like that. So he got dumped and then had to watch her kids while his roommate went out. Unbelievable. With her, so. That's ah, like the poster child. That should be on like a brochure of what it's like to be in the military for sure. Oh, yeah. I remember one of my sergeants one morning when I was on duty who he was already kind of a wacko as a sergeant living in the barracks and stuff going on. And I remember just <laughs> it was super early in the morning, like crack of dawn. And he's walking out of the barracks holding like a baby carrier with a baby in it. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, huh? So, yeah, all sorts of... Well, imagine me what I used to look like whenever I was go feed the dogs and I would have to put Kelsey in a stroller. Like, yeah. I had the big Japanese, like, push-style stroller. Yeah. And so I would have... Kelsey would be in the stroller and I'd have the dog food and dog pants for 22 military working dogs underneath pushing Kelsey through the kennels and, like, putting them <laughs> put in there. I, will, I wish I could see that. <laughs> I will say this. If you see your battle buddy clearly going down the wrong path and making a mistake encourage him in. encourage him <laughs> encourage him oh yeah you gotta go all in you gotta find out if she's she or he has a friend and do the same yeah you gotta yeah. get that bah going mm-hmm. amen no save Especially your, save your battle buddies yeah mill to mill double bah baby oh, that's yeah. the way to really live that's the way to really get it going amen. all right let's move on to round number three this one come <laughs> Uh, just seeing the picture of the guy makes me laugh. A rifle-toting vet was arrested after dressing up and trying to join the National Guard. Kate, what happened here? Yeah, this comes to us from the Military Times has that section called the Observation Post now. Mm-hmm. But, like, it is a hotbed of wacky-ass stories. This is J.D. Simpkins. A rifle-toting veteran who once spent time in the National Guard was arrested Tuesday morning in Los Angeles after he reportedly dressed up in a uniform resembling those worn by the California National Guard troops. A little California National Guard cosplay goofing. Okay, (laughs) that's all right. But except here's the problem. He then attempted to fall into formation during the city's anti-racism demonstrations. Gregory Wong, age 31, arrived equipped with multiple weapons after taking an Uber to the scene of the protest. (laughs) Imagine you are that Uber driver. Hey, man, where are you going? (laughs) Don't worry about it. Yeah, I forgot. I got a lot. I got sidetracked from my unit. I'm just trying to get back to him. Uh, everything's fine. Anyway, so he takes an Uber to the protest. Once downtown, Wong reportedly joined a formation of guardsmen who had recently arrived to monitor select sites. What does he say there? Like scooch, and everybody's just like, okay, <laughs> yeah, excuse me, or just silently blend in. Like, did he walk backwards slowly hey, into the group? Scooch over. Well, dress it, right was, dress. it was part of a 4,500 person mobilized force, and I imagine there was a little bit of chaos. And I bet it's kind of easy to slink in, but. Wong's time information didn't last as puzzled troops began to question the authenticity 
of the unfamiliar service member in the mismatching uniform. Imagine you're at a protest and things are already stressful and you turn around and you're like, who the fuck is this? Like, what? No, imagine you have to go tell your squad leader, like, hey, 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 Sergeant so-and-so, I don't know who this guy is. Or like yeah. if you're there and you're sitting in front of the formation and all of a sudden like the platoon leader is like, at close set of a dress, right? Dress. And then you look over and you're like, who the fuck is this guy? Well, so uh, uh, this recruit uh, just got lost before. I don't recognize yeah. that Marine uh, uh, So skeptical troops finally keep in mind he got there in the morning, blended in with them in the and that morning. That takes some bravery to put your little dick skinner up in the sky and be like, "Hey, I don't know who the fuck this fella is." That's so, what I'm saying. Everyone's usually just like, "I don't know. I shouldn't say anything." They didn't get him out of there finally till one thirty in the morning. He got there in the morning. <laughs> he was there with them. Literally, it took until one thirty in the morning for somebody to finally be like, "All right, I'm trying done with this to guy. like office space it and have like his an AR fifteen be his fucking stapler." Yes, exactly. It was just it was the most. And looking at this guy, and he there's I was like, "Oh, that's the end of the story." It gets better. So first, let let me tell this part. According to the report, police classified Wong's M4 rifle as a ghost gun, custom built, no serial number. He also had a pistol on him. He was charged. That with sounds t- fancy. Ghost gun sounds fancy. Ghost gun. My goodness. I need. I'm not a big gun guy, but I need a ghost gun. I'm picturing the backpack like ghost, a ghost sucker gun. Yeah. Anyways, he was charged with transportation of an assault weapon and is being held on fifty thousand dollar bond. He told the police that he was only in the area to provide security for a friend's business. Then I don't know why he blended in with the National Guard for about fifteen hours and mm-hmm. hung out with them all day. Okay. Here's the thing that I love. That I, Okay, I'm like, story's over, but wait, hold on to your butts. A search of Wong's recent activity reveals a foray into numerous endeavors under his personal brand, Spartan 117GW. Of course, Spartan. Of course, there's a Spartan reference in there. <laughs> under which Wong claims to currently manage social media for several companies and the fan club Jurassic Park Motor Pool. What? You know what me, big Jurassic Park lady. I tilted my head to the side. I said, let's look this up. Uh, and also, he was a big World War II reenactor in cosplay and all that stuff. Oh, man. The Jurassic Park <laughs> Motor Pool Fan Club is a group of owners and enthusiasts of Jurassic Park vehicles. There are divisions around the globe, hundreds of them, thousands wow. and thousands of people who buy Jeeps and then spend all their time making them look exactly like the ones in Jurassic Park. There are divisions they have challenge coins in almost every stand, like what, one, two, three, four, five, six, in 13 states across the country, including Hawaii. There's a Tennessee Valley, Michigan, Desert well, Hawaii Raptor. makes sense because that's where it was filmed. Right. But I mean, and that's, they spend all their time. So he is part of this. Not only does he blend in with the National Guard, big Jurassic Park guy. And, like, running the account for this Jurassic Park. I just thought that was such a random... Can I say something here? Yes. I love it. I would love <laughs> to have a Jurassic Park Jeep. Yeah. I would love it. I mean, you could... That would fit my personality, yeah. right? Like, 100%. 100%. If you guys flew to San Antonio and you're like, hey, Chaz, can you pick me up from the airport? And I was like, sure. And, like, what do, what do we look for? Just look for the Jurassic Park Jeep. I don't think you guys would even think I wouldn't twice bat an eye. about it. I would not bat an eye. 
Well, they meet up and they go on convoys together, like they're going through traffic. Park. Park. Jurassic Park convoy. I honest to God, going down to see the if there's a San Antonio chapter. I'm going to need a hobby after coronavirus. Is there over. is a Texas. There is a Texas division oh, chapter. So yeah, I, I need to do that. Here. There's, there's in South America, New Zealand, uh, in Saudi Arabia. There's like three of them. That's surprising. They're, they're everywhere. And Saudi thing, Arabia's doing a little Jurassic Park goofing. Yes, that's surprising. And the thing they try to get you into the club with is if you turn your car into a Jurassic Park car. Every time there's a car convention or a meetup or whatever, people or birthday kids' birthday parties, you can start making money off this car. People oh, want, I don't doubt that. People want this car. I remember when I used to work the car show. The in dinosaur Philly. party game is huge. Yeah, so I can see people end up kind of making. Not, nah, I bet they never break even, but I bet people start making money. And it's probably that big dick energy of you have a hobby that people want to see, like showing mm. off your car and people. Oh, but, this old thing. Yeah. Oh, this is. I wonder. I wonder if they roll up to birthday parties and they got multiple people in the car dressed as the characters from the movie. Like you got yeah. Doctor Ian Malcolm riding shotgun, the woman's yep. in the you know driving like that. That'd be pretty. You know what I would do? What I would constantly have a cup in like the cup holder oh, that yeah. has like a little yeah. Bluetooth speaker on it that constantly <laughs> shakes the water. Every time yeah, your hey, wife gets in the car, you here. put a little bead on her hand. Yeah, like, oh, yeah. sassy. Anyways, it would have been way more impressive if- uh, With a big if, old thing of dinosaur shit in my backyard. Big old thing, yeah. Put your, put your hand in it. Uh, if he had rolled up to the yes. protest in the Jurassic Park vehicle in his uniform, in his yes. flight uniform, that would have been- Popped Quick, out Kate, and said, Don't off worry, the top I got of your it, head, guys. let's give the best impression you could do of the tiny dinosaur that spits at Newman. Can you do that? <laughs> That's pretty that good. Was, that was terrible. Cons? Oh, no, that was pretty good. That was really good. Holy shit! That's that's their cha- their main challenge coin for the Jurassic Park motor pool is that raptor on a coin. Is it? Yes, I swear to God. So those things are adorable. I would love to have one, but they get angry. You have to keep them. You probably have to give them treats a lot. Don't yeah. drop a canister of shaving cream around them. I know uh-uh. that for sure. Forget it. I pity the fool. I do like fried chicken. Jeep people are a special breed, but this, I think, really does take it to a different level. But far be it for me to judge. You know, we all have things that we probably don't want out there in the world. Oh, I'm judging the shit out of They this. probably should have went with Land Rovers. That'd be even cooler. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Jurassic probably. Park Land Rovers would be the shit. Mm-hmm. Not as cool as being an A-10 pilot like our next guest, Senator. Uh, oh, come on, Senator. What's her name? Senator... Oh, my God. Martha McSally. Martha McSally. Oh. Uh, I had a brain fart there. Senator Martha McSally is going to join us on the show. I thought that she did a great job. I had one joke that I had lined up that I didn't get to tell, so I'm going to tell it before she comes on. I wanted to ask her because she didn't win the election to be the senator and the representative of Arizona. She was actually appointed by the governor, and I wanted to ask her, is that the best duty that she's ever been voluntold to do? Ah. So here she is. I still have the little dipper mug. So if you want to joke about that, we can talk about it. Absolutely. Well, you're absolutely right. So I guess we'll go ahead and get started with the podcast. Okay. The voice that you hear there is uh, Senator McSally from Arizona. She is a fighter pilot, she, an A-10 pilot, which is my favorite plane in the entire military complex system. Awesome. I love an A-10. I, the first time I ever saw an A-10, I was doing, I was in a firefight and we had to call in air support and an A-10 came overhead. <laughs> And the noise that it made and the destruction that came in with the guns, it is unbelievable the advantage that an A-10 on the battlefield gives you. Senator, thanks for joining us on Zero Block 30. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. I've got my A-10 necklace on. I don't know if anybody can see that. And I got an oh. A-10 behind me, too, over here. So. Well, you awesome. can't be an A-10 pilot without a good 
impression of what they sound like. Do you want to give us a little bit oh, of no, what they sound like? I can't do it. But I'll do it. Oh, do a gun run. Let's okay, do a gun run. <laughs> I, I see on Twitter sometimes some other pilots I follow and they'll just reply to things sometimes with a yeah. B, like a thousand R's yeah. and a T. T, exactly, yeah. exactly. It's amazing. So, well, I'm glad uh, we were able to be overhead and, and support you. Uh, I picked the A-10 of all the other planes. I had a choice of F-15, F-15E, F-16, F-111, or A-10, and I picked the beautiful, ugly warthog uh, because it's such an incredible mission that, you know, the, the folklore is that they built the gun and went to the engineers and said, figure out how to fly this gun. You know, it's awesome. Yeah. I mean, and, that's essentially what it seems like and looks like too. And initially I just saw in the news this week that the air force has finally relaxed the minimum height requirement for officer aviators. Oh and initially, I mean, you were the, the first female fighter pilot to be in combat. You were a half inch too short. How did you, ahead of this change, like 20 years, how did you get to be a pilot? It's, I mean, I can't believe I saw that news last week. I talk about my journey of overcoming this uh, height issue in my book, you know, Dare to Fly. And I talk about the adversity of dealing with bureaucrats, quite frankly. I mean, I did a cockpit fitting uh, that showed I could, you know, you got to be able to reach the pedals and get out of a spin and, and you know, Can't stop sit on a high speed. Uh, phone book in an A-10. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can't do that in the ejection seat. Uh, you got to be able to see over the dashboard. Uh, but similarly, obviously, if you're tall, you got to be able to close the canopy and you could actually seriously get injured in ejection. So there are important reasons why they have limitations. But the, the instructors and the flight surgeons said, hey, I'm good to go. My sitting height was actually okay. My leg length was just a little bit too short. And these bureaucrats kept saying no. And so we uh, we persevered and I was able to get an exception to the policy. We showed that my leg length was stronger than the vast majority of pilot qualified male and, and female candidates. That still didn't matter. But here we are now over like three decades later, they finally decided to relax those standards and look at people as individuals. Maybe they saw my book was coming out. Yeah. <laughs> hey, <laughs> by bureaucracy standards, 30 years is pretty quick, you know, that's pretty, that's pretty yeah, impressive exactly. actually. And, and also I, going through your bio and some of the things that you did while you're in the military, I would bet that you had a little bit of a reputation for being a shitster while you were in because not only did you challenge the rule about being too short but also whenever you were in Saudi Arabia you actually sued the yeah. Department of Defense your boss and Secretary Rumsfeld like going yeah. through that was that a scary thing to do being on active duty and suing your boss uh yeah like you don't just wake up in the morning and say like what am I gonna do today oh I think I'll sue the Secretary of Defense right, right. So this, and it's know, not yeah, like I Rumsfeld was a pussycat <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah, I shared the eight-year battle. Whoever would have imagined it would have been an eight-year battle uh, in Dare to Fly about, you know, it's part of our mantra, and you guys understand this, don't walk by a problem, right? If we see something's wrong, we got to do something about it. And so I was stationed in Kuwait. This didn't apply to me, but I walked by the duty desk one day, and I saw, I don't know, it was like a newsletter. I don't even remember what it was, but I saw a picture of what I thought was a local Muslim woman, and in fact, it was a U.S. military enlisted woman with a black abaya and headscarf. This was the appropriate way to dress, and I was like, <laughs> WTF, right? Sorry, I'm a senator. I'm not allowed to talk like that anymore, oh. <laughs> and so I just couldn't believe it, and I felt this conviction. It was wrong, but I had this, you know, internal struggle of, man, I had just we had just transitioned to fighters as women. Last thing I want to do is raise some women's issue, right? I was just trying to show that 
you know, girls can shoot too, we can fly the plane. But I just felt like I had a voice that they didn't have and I needed to step up for them. And I never would have imagined I'd be on an eight year battle. And at the, throughout the course of it, uh, when the executive branch just failed to fix it. And it's another case, by the way, of bureaucratic policy creep. And I talk about the whole journey in the book, how ridiculous it was over time. But yeah, I sued Donald Rumsfeld and uh, then went to Congress as a, you know, just a regular citizen. Uh, but I wasn't going to, you know, stand out. I knew it was wrong. It was against our freedoms, our way of life, our constitution. That's what our oath is to. Um, and it needed to change. And so I persisted over eight years, took a lot of kind of creative maneuvering to figure out how uh, to find other ways to stand up against it. But eventually... You'll see in the book, Dare to Fly, I was <laughs> nice driving, a car. Nice I was driving a car in jeans last year in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> that was like my big, you know, well, I probably, I can't swear. Sorry, but it was my. Uh, <laughs> oh, yes, you can. Here you can. Well, we no, won't tell anyone. <laughs> I'm a senator, so I have to be careful, but it was. Uh, yeah. But I bet your bosses, because I imagine like just doing oh, different things, like as, as a Marine, whenever you're going through the day-to-day -day grind of yeah. different stuff, if you report something outside of your chain of command or to the next level of your chain yeah. of command and you go over like a battalion level and yeah. you try to talk to the base general or something like that, I bet your direct supervisors there were like, what in the fuck are you doing? <laughs> so the Secretary of Defense... <laughs> Captain at the time, Captain McSally. Well, so my, so my first, um, the first time that I uh, raised the issue and, uh, you know, it became controversial was when I was over deployed in Kuwait, that, that tour. And um, the Secretary of Defense at the time, not Rumsfeld, but it was Perry, was coming over to visit. And because I was the first woman fighter pilot to deploy, you know, they wanted to see what it was like. And I thought, here's my opportunity, right, to speak up on their behalf. I was putting up with some other ridiculous rules in Kuwait where we had to wear, you know, Sharpe, long baggy sweatpants on base working out when it's like 150 out. But I, I decided, hey, I wanted to bring this up for them. So I actually told my squadron commander, so that was the good news. He totally agreed with me. He supported me. He kind of helped facilitate it. But when I brought it up, man, like everybody between him and the Secretary of Defense got mad, right? And you know, you know what they do? They start oh, yeah. well, Especially if there's it's those meetings where they say, oh, it's an open door policy. Ask anything you want. And then everybody else is looking at you better not ask you Better shit. not go to that door. Yeah. <laughs> you guys know that. I mean, so I joke about like, I look, I'm generally a change agent um, uh, at heart. I'm, you know, feisty, as you can see. Um, I found out when I was at the Air War College, we took like a detailed Myers-Briggs test that my personality is statistically non-existent in the military above the rank of lieutenant colonel because we're constantly sort of pushing on things like, why do we do things that way? Like, why can't we do this? And so we either get, you know, derailed or, you know, or we get frustrated and leave. So that really explained it a lot for me. But what I learned over time, I used to take, you know, kind of the frontal attack, you know, like this is ridiculous. And I would, you know, go kind of directly you know, to whatever, the commander, or the leader. And with the Abaya case, most of the commanders were like, this is not our problem, right? This is a different chain of command. Why are you bothering me with this? And so I would take a very aggressive approach. And I had to learn over time, you know, growing up, you got to make it the general's idea, right? You got to take the Sun Tzu approach. Mm -hmm. You got to kind of, you know, figure out your way to build your case and do it indirectly. And so it, you, don't, you don't have as much immediate resistance if you're trying to actually fix something. That's a great, that's a great way to look at it. And even, you know, reading the, the parts of the book that talk about that stuff. When I was in Afghanistan in 2010, I had a staff sergeant give me this, this light green sparkly, and you got to wear this on your head when you're on the, and I was like, 
no, I'm a Marine and I'm not going to do that. Like I was very respectful of the culture, but at the same time, I, I think they saw, I think most of, they saw me as like a third sex. Right. The, the yeah. Afghans, the Afghans didn't expect me to wear it. They didn't yes. mind if I did or not. I was respectful of the culture, but I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Seth, like, I'm not, I'm not wearing that. Sorry. Uh, especially like he wanted me to put it on under my, my Kevlar. And I was like, exactly. No, Crazy. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, they were doing this yeah. in Saudi Arabia. Again, this was the U.S. military doing it to ourselves. Most people yeah. didn't realize that. They thought it was something else. The State Department wasn't doing it. So it was a classic case where everybody thought it was above their pay grade. It was like a little bit of cultural sensitivity gone awry, and it got yeah. more and more ridiculous over time. After I retired, I saw that they were doing that in Afghanistan to people like you, and I was like, mm-hmm. what the yeah. hell? Like, and I'm like, by the way, this thing's not flame retardant. It's not like, why do you want me to put this on my head? While it's we're probably just a good example of good initiative, bad judgment. Yeah. Right. Like where it's good initiative, bad judgment, where you're trying, the the government is trying to be as sensitive as possible, but also you don't want to bend to the will into the restrictive nature of the countries that, that you're in. I don't think that that's necessary too. I want to go back to Afghanistan though, for a second, because when you were, when you were going as a fighter pilot, you're flying an A-10, obviously a lot of responsibility over there. You're also commanding the unit there too. When you're, getting ready to fly do yeah. you have anything in the back of your brain that is realizing like i'm about to break a barrier like i think of people like jackie robinson and mm-hmm. different women across history and different races across history that are barrier breakers that's one were you cognizant of that whenever you were getting ready to fly into combat for the first time well, my first combat already absolutely not. I just was like, did I pay attention in class? Do I know how to do my checklist? Uh, am I ready to go if I have engine failure and I get, you know, where I'm having to evade and, uh, you know, evade capture? You're very much focused on the mission. I will say, though, when I went through training, because we were, you know, when they opened up the door and it was a, you know, it was a challenging transition, I had to manage um, just being a trainee, just do the best you can. Study your books, be ready. You're going to make mistakes as a trainee, right? Just like anybody. So you got to be light on your feet, uh, learn from them and move forward. Always looking through the windscreen, not behind you. So every once in a while, I would feel this burden, like the entire female gender is, you know. And that's a lot. I mean, you already have a lot of shit on your plate and that's a lot to carry too. Yeah, so then I just had to compartmentalize it and go like, exactly, just shut up and land this plane, you know, like focus yeah. on just doing your job in the moment. Because really, if you do your job in the moment, you do the mission in the moment, then the rest will take care of itself. So I had to, I had to figure out how to get that off my back, you know, and just, um, you know, focus on leading and, um, you know, flying. And especially, I mean, there's no greater honor than commanding men and women in combat. I'm so proud of my team and everything they did. And so I was very much focused in the moment. This is my one chance to command and combat the highest honor of my life. I'm not worried about what people are saying about, you know, right. the first one to do it. Just be a good commander. You got bigger fish but the, to fry, being the first woman yeah. to do it part's not bad to have. Either. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> and it really does matter. It really does make a difference because I, I do feel like you were talking about that pressure you feel. That's still very much a thing. And yeah. when we when me, we make a small mistake or we mess up, it's the story being told in the chow hall isn't an airman messed up. It was like this this woman messed female. up. You know what I mean? This female, yeah, this female did such and such. Right. Every mistake, you always hear the stories about the female screwing up. And I'm like, well, you, you men are screwing up way more than we are. But that's okay. Hey, that's fine. You know, a guy screws up and they're not saying, did you see that man? You know, yeah. but, it is what it is. You know, as you know, Kate, you got to have a good sense of humor. Unless you live in my house, my wife does all the time. 
<laughs> yeah, you're blaming you all the time. But I wanted to know, you're talking about, you've done 325 combat hours in the yeah. A-10 Warthog. Yeah. And I'm sure at some point it kind of sort of blurs together all, uh, I mean, so many different tours. Is there any particular mission that stands out in your mind as one you're either most proud of or one that, yeah. that just you think of the most? Yeah, well, every mission is different, as you know. And um, for our missions in Afghanistan in particular, we would maybe take off on what was a routine combat mission, which I don't, you know, what, is there any such a thing? Right. But we were also on our, uh, you know, on our dashboard, for lack of a better word, we would have maps of the entire country of Afghanistan uh, that we would be able to pull out if we needed to get diverted because troops were in contact and they needed help, right? So we would often just take off with one mission in mind, but we would get diverted over. We'd be given a call sign, a radio frequency, a grid coordinate, and just show up and figure it out. So there's one that I do talk about, a pretty harrowing mission uh, in, in Dare to Fly uh, in a uh, canyon in Southern Afghanistan, where again, taking off for a different mission, but we got diverted uh, to be able to help these uh, special forces that were doing a reconnaissance mission through a canyon and they got ambushed. And so there was challenging terrain. They were starting to be separated, right? They were all separated there. And they were, some of them were climbing up the sides of the wall, of the canyon, the insurgents were intertwined with them. So it wasn't like a clear, here's the front line. You know, you roll in parallel to the friendlies usually, but there's good guys and bad guys everywhere. So the risk of friendly fire is high when, you know, they're on the move, they're close to each other. And then you add the winding canyon. So even your direction of fire becomes complex. So, uh, you know, we have amazing technology, but in this case, when I showed up, the, um, the, the A-10 who I was relieving, who was low on gas, was pointing my eyes to a particular tree in a particular bend, you know, in the canyon, and we got to make sure we're all looking at the same tree, you know, from above. Oh, my God. And then the, the uh, controller on the ground, again, we have great technology, and it works a lot, but in this case, he pulled out his pocket mirror and and flashed the sun into my eyes to say, this is where I am, don't hit me. But as we were plotting wow. out where the bad guys were, like it was just a, a, a hornet's nest of intertwining. And so I went in to mark the target with uh, white phosphorus um, uh, rockets. And as I pulled off, my entire heads up display failed. And so these are, yeah, that's the target. I, I obviously so know what that means, but for idiots listening who don't know what that means, what does that mean? Well, your heads up display, it shows you, I mean, really that's all you're looking through normally when you're on an attack run and it shows you everything you need to know. And it is a computer that calculates if you open fire right now, this is where the bullet's going to hit. It's based on all the physics of the bullet and wind corrections and everything. It's, it's pretty amazing. I mean, we practice to fly on the wire. You guys understand this. Uh, most of the interviews I've done, I don't get into the details. But, you know, where you have to be, if, for your bullet to hit at the exact right place, you have to be at the right altitude, airspeed, and dive angle at that moment in time when you open fire to be on the wire, to be accurate, the, the bullets don't have little motors on them. It's all based right. on gravity, right? And so you've got to be really precise about being on that wire. If you're on a 30-degree wire, you've got to be a certain distance, altitude, airspeed. you got three to five seconds down final. Here I am with my hands, right? And so my, my entire system failed. All the calculations, there's multiple levels of degradation, and it was gone. So I had to go back to World War II type tactics and, and bombing where I had to come back around, set up on like a base level, right? So this is base 90 degrees off and then you go down final like this. So you're, you're looking out the side of the canopy to make sure you're the right distance away. And no kidding, we would look out the side and we would line up the target 
30 degree wire for me was a fist above the canopy. Uh, you know, 20 degree was a fist of the thumb. Wow. You know, 10 degree was like hang 10, right? And that you would line it up, right altitude, airspeed. I'd look at a bunch of calculations on my knee board to make sure I had it all right for the physics. Oh my God. <laughs> and then, you know, and then you have to roll in and now you don't have your heads up display. You've got like a World War II fixed site, but now you have to come back inside. You have to look at altitude, airspeed and uh, dive angle and make corrections for winds. And again, friendly fire risk is really high here. And so I had to make a decision first. I was like, should I even do this? Should I even be coming in and stand by Pipper with this risk so high? And I said, you know what? I'm a squadron commander. I've done this a million times on the training range. Like I know how to do this. These guys need me. I have to do this. And so I came back around, lined up on base, looked at my math, you know, lined everything up, came down in and made my corrections. And it's, you know, it's as fast as, you know, if you're, it's by a certain amount, if you're fast, it's going to go long. If you're slow, it's going to go short. If you're high, it's going to go short. If you're low, it's going to go long. If you're steep, it's going to go long. If you're shallow, it's going to go short. You have to be like, oh, I'm high, fast and shallow. And you got to do that math in three to five seconds down final, make corrections and open fire. So as I pulled off, lost everything, uh, here I am like flying, you know, yeah. came around. We're going to have to release this video too because the center is getting into all kinds of stuff. She's going, hands. She's going all I over came, the place. And then I came in, said a little fighter pilot prayer, which is not G-rated, but you know, please Lord, <laughs> don't let me mess this up. Yeah. And, and then I rolled in hot, uh, hit the target, shacked the target. My wingman came in uh, and went in hot after me. He was on his first combat mission ever. Wow. And then we reattacked a few more times and we were able with other A-10s to protect those guys throughout the, the day and the evening. We got them all out safely that night. Uh, it was extraordinary. And there's I need a beer. Before. I wish I, I had know. a beer listening to this in a bar right now. I'd be like, another one, please, bartender. Yeah, there's nothing more profound though than, yeah, I should have I should have used my little A-10 model here. Like, all right, there I was, <laughs> right? Um, but there's nothing more profound, seriously. These guys are on the ground doing amazing work, like you all in the Marines, like fighting the bad guys in this tough terrain in very difficult circumstances, just so heroic. And there's nothing more profound than being on the radio with them as, as their kind of angel of uh, above, providing that yeah. close air support when tensions are high, risks are high of enemy fire, friendly fire. Uh, we're all in this together. And then we're able to, you know, be able to, get out safely and they live to fight another day and get home to their families. It was, it was a uh, pretty extraordinary. You know, and when you're doing that type of thing, do you have a song like now, would you go, would you have like your iPod or your phone on Spotify? <laughs> if you could do it again, what soundtrack would you want to do that mission? Oh my to? gosh. I don't know. I'd have to think about that, right? Something I, the whole about. time you're doing it. The only thing I could think of is like, <laughs> you're the Senator flying in on your dragon, like your Khaleesi and it's the game <laughs> of Thrones thing going on in the yeah, background, yeah. but instead of a dragon, you have an A-10 warthog. It's the, here comes the A-10. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'd have to think about that, the song. It's certainly not, you know, uh, you know, Top Gun song, right? Because that's Navy. I mean, you right. guys are yeah. um, <laughs> So, but yeah, like the A-10, it's just, it's just so awesome. And we've heard stories, I'm sure you've heard them too, where there's sometimes we're overhead and like we actually can't do positive identification of the guys on the ground, right? We, we know like you all came under fire and we're trying to figure out, but the bad guys don't know that. They don't know our PID criteria. They don't know, we don't see them. And we would, you know, comms would be intercepted that they would, they would interpret later that said, the A-10s are overhead, you know, oh, shoot. run yeah. for your life. And oh, we maybe yeah. didn't get them that day, but they disengaged with the good guys, right? So right. we were able to, able to help. 
That is pretty, you know, just the other episode, I was talking about how I have trouble reading numbers and stuff. I guess that's <laughs> pilot, not for me, hearing you tell that story just now about the adjustments and everything. I have strengths, man, you know? Yeah, we all have our different things. But you're talking about, you know, you get to talk to them over the radio. But truly, again, Chaps is saying it, being on the ground, like on my first, when the A-10s would go by, the morale yeah. would just absolutely skyrocket. Yeah. Did you ever get a chance to to meet or to talk to any of the people who were on the ground when you came flying through? I did. I did. Uh, several times we would have some of the controllers and others come through uh, and we were able to talk to them about specific missions. It was it was really extraordinary. We, we had this yeah. one mission where we had a, a CH-47 that had... Um, crashed at high altitude, really complicated. So I scrambled to launch the Sandy mission to be able to provide cover for them and, and get them rescued. I mean, luckily that particular mission, they didn't have insurgents coming after them, but they were, some of them were in bad shape and they were at high altitude. So there was a lot of um, uh, oxygen, you know, deprivation. You're not, I mean, I've, I've climbed mountains before. You're not thinking really straight, you know, at high altitude. And later on, it, it, when we got them out there, we were, I was actually able to go visit uh, the, the one who was hurt the most badly that night uh, in the hospital at Bagram. And uh, it just, just incredible. I mean, but there were several others who came through and we were able to see like, hey, that was you, you know, and you recall the mission. And uh, it's just really cool. We couldn't drink beer there, but, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, that kind of thing is really special whenever somebody does, because that's not something that's inherently in part of your job where you have to do that, but it does mean a lot. I, whenever I got shot and I was in the hospital in Fallujah, our air officer came and visited me. Like yeah. the one that was watching um, basically overhead via drone and things like that and calling in and telling the helicopters where to come and yeah. how to rescue me. He came and visited me. And oh, it meant a lot while I was in the hospital to see people that were above you, beside you, they cared about you. Like right. while you're in the position, like you know that you have to do something dangerous but the people on the ground are the ones that are in your mind and you're doing this dangerous job yes. to protect them it's like i said it's such a profound you know intimate connection when you go through something like that together and i mean you just feel like you're brothers and sisters for life even though we wouldn't know each other's faces and so when you can complete that connection by coming in and visiting because it's just uh, you know it's uh it's deeply dangerous what, what, you know, what they're doing out there. And then if we're able to say, you know, get, help them get back safely, it's just, I don't know, it brings, it just keeps us all going. Right. Cause it's, um, you know, just providing that uh, support and, and connection to each other. That's a part of our morale. It's hard to explain to civilians. Yeah. And you know, Chaps is saying it, it is your job. That was also a very dangerous job. Even the training was incredibly dangerous for, for pilots still is. And yeah. uh, I know you talk about it in dare to fly, but what made you want to follow this path? Because we talk about too, I've said in other episodes, like a lot of times, especially for me, it's like representation. I didn't know or think about doing something until I saw somebody else doing it. And I'm like, yeah. oh, maybe yeah. I could do that too. Like what inspired you to follow this path? Well, for me, it's not a typical story. I mean, I flew with a lot of kids who, since they were two years old, had little spoons with airplanes on them, like, you know, and they're always looking to the sky and going to air shows. I was actually motion sick when I was a kid. So I didn't have an inherent desire to fly. Uh, my dad served in the Navy, uh, but I wasn't around a military town, but I grew up with the values for sure, you know, that he learned uh, in the Navy, just, you know, working hard, making a difference with your life. He started working at the age of eight. 
but he passed away when I was 12 and it was mm. a, a, just the single biggest impact on my life. It almost derailed me, but it, it propelled me. Uh, before he died, I got to visit with him and he told me to make him proud. And it wasn't an easy path. I didn't get up the next day, you know, I need to make my dad proud. You're an adolescent. So I really struggled. As you can tell, I'm a little feisty, so I could have gone either way, right? I'm got a little bit <laughs> of a rebellious spirit acting out in my grief, but also wanting to make him proud. And now my mom's got five kids, single mom, carrying wow. on the mantle. And I was looking for opportunities to get a good education. And I didn't want to saddle my mom with debt. And I had no idea. You make these decisions when you're 17, right? So I had no idea what I was doing. Right. And I ended up deciding to go to the That's like me and my lower back tattoo. I get it. <laughs> so. I had no idea. Like, I mean, literally I said, hey, mom, maybe I'm not going to go to college. Maybe I'll join the army. And so she comes home and she's like, well, if you're going to join the army, why don't you go to West Point? Like you're graduating valedictorian. Like, why don't you, why don't you, you know, go get a free scholarship? And I was like, what's that? So she brings home the brochures to the different military academies. Again, you're 17. So you're flaky. Right. right. And I'm like, I'll try that one, you know, Air Force Academy. So, well, anyway, Colorado Springs sounds beautiful. Like we've talked about <laughs> that before. It's yeah. a shithole town, but it sounds beautiful. <laughs> I, know, I had great. actually looked into cross commissioning the Marines when I was at the Air Force Academy. But, but either way, when I got to the Academy, I thought I was going to be a doctor, is what I was thinking. And when I got there, I found out for the first time in my life, I couldn't do something just because I was a girl. I didn't know that. It was against the law. Women couldn't be fighter pilots. And it just pissed me off. And I was like, well, that's exactly what I'm going to do. And so I, I channeled that. my feistiness into like this dream and this like, I'm going to be a fighter pilot someday. I didn't know the difference between a flap and an aileron. I knew nothing about flying, but I just had this dream to prove them wrong. And people laughed at me. They're like, it's against the law, McSally. And I'm like, we live in America. Laws change. And I'm going to be right there when it changes. I happen to be. I was, you know, there were so many women who were qualified before me, but like many things, timing matters, right? I was in the right place at the right time with the right qualifications and the right dream when the door finally blew open. Uh, but it was definitely to prove them wrong to say girls can do it too. It's awesome. Now, I want to transition a little bit from the military side to the politics side, because obviously now you're a senator for the state of Arizona. Wait, you didn't talk about Little Dipper. Yeah. I know. I do want to know that. I, so I always do like a speed round at I some point. To, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, oh my gosh. Well, before we transition to politics then, uh, Senator McSally is drinking out of a mug that says Little Dipper on it. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, flying, navigation, Little stars. Dipper. That is not the reason that says Little Dipper. What is the reason? Well, again, I share this in uh, my book, Dare to Fly, where when I first transitioned to fighters, and Kate, you can, I'm sure, relate to this, right? We just wanted to show that, you know, we want to be one of the guys, right? We want to blend in, do our job, not stand out as a woman. And so I decided, not necessarily the best decision, I was gonna, you know, out drink, out swear, out, you know, whatever. And so like one of my instructor pilots actually chewed tobacco and he was like, you need to share some, you know, tobacco with me. So I started dipping. I thought that would be part of my like, creating cognitive dissonance in people, you know, and there's uh -huh. stereotypes of women. So I started dipping. And so like, that was my call sign, little dipper for a little Well, while. it is shocking. When you see a lady with a pinch of Copenhagen <laughs> on her lip, you're, it takes yeah. you back. It does. That was my intent. And, and so then I met somebody, um, I, you know, once in the officer's club, he said, hey, you're that A-10 chick who dips. And I just thought to myself, like, oh, my gosh, after all I've been through in my life and all I've tried to achieve, if I drop dead tomorrow, is that what I'm going to be remembered for? So I quit. But I and at that point, little... you're already an Air Force Academy grad and a Harvard graduate. <laughs> 
Yeah. You're the dipping chick. I don't know how many combat missions she flew, but boy, could she dip, you know? <laughs> I was like, I need to stop that. Like, this is a little bit ridiculous. So I have the little dipper mug to remind me of that, that phase in my life. But Though yeah. I will say, I feel like you would for sure, if you were the dipping senator in the house with a little bottle on your thing, I feel like people- Much cooler than Duncan Hunter when he was vaping. Yeah, way cooler than the vaping guy. That's very- <laughs> that would get attention. It would for sure. Okay. So I want to ask you about, because in your military career, with the suit against Donald Rumsfeld yeah. and with challenging the rules about being tall and things like that, um, well, not being tall, being tall enough, I guess. Can you exactly. ride this ride? <laughs> That's right. what they should have at A10 school, yeah, just like a big ruler. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so whenever you're in, as a senator, Obviously, the president leads your party, that you're, you're a Republican senator. Whenever something happens, do you have any reservations, like if you would disagree with the president about being outspoken like you were in the military when something happened that you didn't agree with? Well, I'm in a unique position where I am in a co-equal branch of the government as the president, and I have a great relationship with the president. I flew on Air Force One with him back to Arizona. Talk about bucket list for this middle-class veteran to be flying on Air Force One, calling my Air 85 Force year old mom, like, hey mom, what's up? I'm on Air Force One. Um, so look, I look at it like this. Like he, this, this guy has been under attack since before he got elected, but for sure since he got elected. No matter what he does, he's just constantly under attack, right? And the, the media is just so biased and so bad. All they wanna do is like, oh, let's come up with controversy, especially they love, you know, Republicans disagreeing with Republicans. So I just take the approach, um, which is like, I'm in a co-equal branch, uh, when I disagree with him, I tell him to my face, you know, I just, to, to his face. I get on the phone with him, I tell him face to face, but he's the president. Like, I, it, I'm not, you know, responsible for, uh, you, you know, I mean, he's going to make his decisions is the point. I give him my input, I share my perspective uh, and how things impact Arizona. Um, but I tell him, you know, if I disagree with him, I just share it, you know, to him personally. And do you think it was your experience kind of going against the grain while you were in that led you that, was politics like kind of a clear path for you after you got out of, oh, of Lord, the military? No. no, 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 no. I mean, I joked that I left the military in part because it was too political, right? Yeah. But I mean, one of my assignments, instead of going to Air Command and Staff College, was a legislative fellowship. So I got to be um, working for Senator Kyle from Arizona and uh, on his national security team. I blame him a little bit for this because I thought most politicians were dirtbags, you know, like most mm -hmm. of America, not very smart, not of good character, not hardworking. And I got to be on his team for a year and I really saw him as a man of integrity, uh, smart, hardworking, and really making a difference as a workhorse. I, I didn't leave there saying like, oh, I want to run for office someday. But I left there saying like, we need people like that. I mean, we need people with the core values we all serve with who care more about the country than their own self, like all those things. So I just felt after I retired, I felt this, you know, call to duty churning inside me. It's, you guys can relate. If we're ever complaining about something, you, you need to be willing to do something about it, right? That's our culture in the military. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you're yelling at the television, you know, look myself in the mirror and go, what are you going to do about it? And so I felt this call to duty to step up and serve. I tried to lie down to the feeling went away, uh, but uh, it didn't. And so I decided, okay, you know, this is my new fight in my new combat zone. I need to jump in and stop complaining and do something about it. And I think you if go. you're a kid growing up in Arizona right now, you've looking at the people who are running for a senator in your state, and you can't just pick on the job career that they had because you had an awesome one as a fighter pilot. Mark Kelly had an awesome one as an astronaut. 
is going up against at least somebody will be senator there that has some military experience and, and veterans is go what is it like for you running against somebody like mark um whenever you're whenever you're doing this because i'm sure you have a ton of respect for him as a person yeah look i appreciate his service like anybody who's served but this is a consequential election i don't want to get too much into politics here right. But this is a consequential election that's going to decide the direction of the country. And Arizona is ground zero for the Senate majority. And we took very divergent paths after we retired. I also think if you look at, you know, if Chuck Schumer and Bernie Sanders and, and Joe Biden are in charge, I mean, the, the far left turn that's gone on uh, with AOC and their socialist agenda, and they want a massive cuts to the military to pay for that, the first vote you take is to decide who's in charge. And so it's, it's important, aside from his service, his first vote will be for Chuck Schumer. It will decide the balance of power, will decide Supreme Court justices and all that kind of stuff. So that's actually what's at stake here. And you know, God bless him for his service, but he's taken a different path since then. And uh, people have a choice and that's gonna be, I think, a real part of this. But well, you know, I wanna mention one thing before yeah. we let you go, Senator. I think that your product placement of your book, Dare to Fly, much better than when Dan Crenshaw was on our show talking about his book. You did a lot better than he did. Oh, oh good, all right. <laughs> yeah. So, so you have that one up on him yeah. as well. Senator, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Good luck, where can they find your book? I'm sure. Amazon yeah. or maybe not Amazon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Go on daretofly.us. There's a bunch of different ways you can click on to get it. And also you can contact me. I want to hear people's inspiring stories. So many of your, you know, military listeners, I want to hear their stories where they overcame fear and adversity and uh, you know, all the little lessons I have in there about learning how to do things afraid and, and don't walk by a problem and, and grieving the loss of friends, you know, who died in service, we can all relate to that. And so I'd love to hear from uh, some of your listeners with their inspiring stories. They can go to daretofly.us. There we awesome. go. Senator, thanks so much. Yeah, Senator, right, thank Tom, you. Thank take, you. Take care, you guys. Thanks a lot. Enjoy. Thank you. Is that the ice cream truck? Yes, I'm sorry. There's Love so many it. things going on outside right now. There's like kids fighting with each other. There's ice cream truck. Spork is in the window. Do you see my little buddy Spork right there? Mm-hmm. All right, ready? quick, quick. I got $2 for you. You can go to the ice cream truck. What are you getting? Oh, the baseball mitt with the bubblegum okay. ball. Chaps? Choco Taco. Yep, same. Choco Taco. Either there. Choco Taco or I might go with that one that has Hulk Hogan on it. Yeah, the WWE bars. Yeah, sure. Taco yeah. tacos, the shell's always soggy. You guys are full mm -hmm. of shit. But no, if they're but good, good and they're crispy, that's the best there is. That's the, that's the they're fresh tacos. The that's the dream. <laughs> yeah, but if you want to have something, the worst part about Taco Taco from the from the truck, though, if you don't have water, you just have that chocolate film on yeah. your throat for a uh, long time. Yeah. Uh -huh. You don't have that with the Patriot Pop, with the red, white, and blue pop, because that's fucking fantastic, too. Yep. Yeah. Consider your environment. I'm glad yeah, we had we this got talk. To. All right, let's continue on with the show. This is the big news of the week, I think, for military veterans, and it is probably one that really divides a lot. Like, I, I think that a lot of times whenever we talk and we have opinions on this show, certainly not all the time, but a lot of the times veterans agree with us, like with our perspective on certain things, not everything in politics, obviously, but when it touches the military and how we feel about it, we see that there is kind of like a consensus, at least in the people that follow us and interact with us, that 
they feel the same way. This one, I got some pushback from some of the things that I said about what General Mattis was saying. Mm -hmm. And that's because he came out with a big op-ed this week. And I don't even know if it was an op-ed. It seemed like it was something that was just like leaked, like an email that he maybe sent to a journalist or something like that. I'm not sure how that story came about. Either way, it was published in The Atlantic yesterday, which would have been Wednesday. You're, we're recording on Thursday. It said, in this, Donald Trump, this is Mattis speaking now, Secretary Mattis, quote, Donald Trump is the first president of my lifetime who does not try to unite the American people, does not pretend to try. And this is from Mattis, who has kept essentially silent, minus some of the speeches that he's given for lots and lots of money since he's left being the speaker uh, or the Secretary of Defense. He goes on to say, instead, he tries to divide us. We are witnessing the consequences of three years of deliberate effort. We are witnessing the consequences of three years without mature leadership. He, he talks about all the different things that President Trump is doing right now, and he just basically takes a bunch of shots at President Trump because of it was highlighted by what's going on in Washington, D.C., the threat of calling up active duty military members who aren't in the National Guard to be involved in some of these security measures for all the, the protests that are going around the country. Now, Secretary Mattis, the thing that I got mad about whenever I first read about this is that he says for three years. Like, so Secretary Mattis is saying for three years, this has been what President Trump has been doing. For 18 months of that, Secretary Mattis was the Secretary of Defense. Mm -hmm. Like, if you really believe that, why in the fuck did it take you so long? Like, he said, I know that he said in his book, Call Sign Chaos, he came out and said that President Trump has owed my silence, but, but for a season. First of all, why? Why do you feel that way? If the country is in peril, like you thought in this op-ed, in your book, fucking mention it. Like you're not, I understand whenever you're a general and you are working for President Obama and you don't agree, or you're working with for President Bush while you're still in uniform and you don't agree with their policies. When you're out of uniform, he's not, he's not signing an oath to be a Secretary of Defense. I mean, he is signing an oath to be a Secretary of Defense, but it's not the same type of being in an active uniform. He could have opened his mouth and resigned much, much earlier than he did. I would love to ask him, why the fuck didn't you? Well, sometimes I think it's like you say, maybe I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt here, where you say, Bloomer, you're planted. Maybe it's like, well, if I leave, somebody even worse is going to come in. Like, maybe it's one of those things where I'm trying the best I can to do what I can as yes. diplomatically as I can while I'm here. And I yep. understand that. And if that was, and if that was the reason, like I want to stay as long as I can possibly stomach this and do it. But once you leave, <clears throat> you've got to be more clear. You got to be unequivocal about why you left. You can't do this. I'm quiet for a year, especially with somebody's reputation like Mattis. Like Mattis and Kelly were revered in the Marine Corps. Kelly not so, not as much as Mattis. Mattis was like a god. I mean, you could go back to earlier episodes of the show where you hear me talk vaingloriously about what's going on with Mattis and his reputation and things like that. If you were quiet for that long, to me, you lose an aspect of what makes you morally brave. There's no question that combat style and things like that, Mattis showed great bravery and was a great leader on the battlefield. To me, that goes without saying. But if you're going to come out and have a statement like this, speak from your throat and speak from right away. You don't need to wait 18 months. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't, 
obviously know General Mattis, uh, and I would love to ask him this question and, and get more insight onto this, but he strikes me as the type of gentleman who's very much into tradition and into respect, and I'm speculating that he saw this as I want to respect uh, my military service, I want to respect the office to which I was appointed, and presumably that's why he didn't come out sooner and, and say that and, and potentially degrade the position that he, he held in President Trump's cabinet. Again, I'm speculating, but it is it, – it's an odd thing. And I understand giving him a bit thing. of a doubt too. Like there's lots of people that are doing that, that are giving him the benefit of the doubt and saying, look, he took this oath seriously. And I think that's that's fine and good. But if you're going to take that stance, where did the 18 months come from? Where did the time frame come from? Or why is this the one issue? What what were the issues before that were preventing you from doing it whenever you said for three years he's been desecrating the Constitution? That's a pretty big allegation to, to throw out. Yeah. Well, no, to, to, that, to put it out there, knowing that so many troops still look up to him, to imply that an order by Trump for troops to deploy against protesters would be a breach of their constitutional oath, that's like a big deal. Huge. Like that's a huge deal to say that. So. For somebody that spent damn near 50 years in uniform. <laughs> Right. And so I don't know. I, but before, so had he spoken out before, though, do you think it would have made any difference in anything? Like I, now he has something to actually point at and be like, this for sure. Okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I lost but my like, train of thought. That's what I was going to say. Like, I, I think potentially, like, you everything. Probably didn't lose it. I probably just cut you off. <laughs> <laughs> um, potentially prior to this, that, you know, whatever, agree or disagree with President Trump, he felt as though, all right, maybe there's some other people that can speak up on this. Maybe he was just finally pushed to the breaking point, to the brink, where he said, all right, I can no longer stay silent. I can no longer honor that respect that I had for that office and for the, the office that I personally held. Now I finally have to say something. And I, it, it stinks that it took something of this magnitude and, and how this has just so negatively affected our country for him to finally speak up. But I would say better late than never. No, I agree with that. I think that this is a big uh, this is a big turning point. I think in American history, if we do the right thing, it's the right it's, it's a big turning point because not only is Mattis speaking out, but there are some speeches that Colin Powell has given recently. There are, he talks about that we need to rediscover the soul of the nation. Admiral Mike Mullen is another another four star general that served our four star admiral that served as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I think that having those types of people speaking out who it is very uncharacteristic of them. Even when um, Colin Powell was the, sec the Secretary of State, he didn't like to give political speeches because he thought it was beneath him um, or outside of the character of somebody who was a general. He went back to being called General Powell. He doesn't like to be called Secretary yeah. Powell. I think that you have people like that who valued service in uniform so much speaking out against what they really see is going against the Constitution. Because we do see in the media and we see in news constantly where it's saying, if you're protesting this, then it's a slap in the face to troops. I don't feel that way. I've never felt that way. I feel like you protest because that's what we signed up to. Like, this will defend. Even if it's a, a cause that I don't believe in, this too we defend. And I think that's what we stand for. And I've loved some of the statements that I've seen from different generals, from some of the the Marine Corps remaining silent. But the, <coughs> the statement that the Air Force general gave, I thought that was fucking fantastic. It's poignant. I thought what the Coast Guard did, it was poignant. We've got to get to a place where we say injustice is 
the injustices of America, treating people differently based on their race, their orientation, their gender, those things are a slap in the face of the Constitution, not protesting. Protesting is guaranteed right by the Constitution. We've got to yeah. get to the heart of the issue. Again, discover where the hole in the hornet's nest came from. Yeah. yeah. Also, Wednesday night, uh, it wasn't just Mattis. It was General John Allen, former commander of American forces in Afghanistan. He also spoke out. More more higher ups, like you said, are speaking out. And we also asked our listeners, like, what are what are your units? Are you guys allowed to like say or do anything? And a lot of people replied that like, basically they're telling us just keep mum on it. But it's was it the Hatch Act where you can't, you know, you have to be careful in uniform, blah, blah, right, but right. I don't think... Yeah, but here's the thing. This isn't, this isn't right, a political, it's not political issue. Exactly. If you're, if you're a military yeah. leader, turn, turn the volume up right now. This right. isn't a right or left issue. This is a right or wrong issue. You're either acting as a decent, considerate human being or you're not. There's, there's, this is not political in any way, shape, or form. It's treat everybody equally and, and treat everyone as a human with their basic rights that they're, they're given in this country. And if you're yeah. starting to think that it is a political issue, then there's a big, bigger issue that you have. And I think because of protests like our, what are happening, we're having more open dialogue than I can ever really remember th from my time of being around the, the military and covering the military. One of those conversations that took place came from Khalif Wright, who is the chief master sergeant of the Air Force. He sat down with the Air Force chief of staff, who's a four-star general, and they had an incredibly open and honest discussion about race and how the chief master sergeant of the Air Force felt about it and felt about the discussion. We want you to hear that. It's very important. It's four and a half minutes long, but it's something that everybody should hear. We'll all learn something from the Chief Master's perspective. Here he is. All right, boss. Rough weekend for the nation. Uh, lots of racial tension. Um, lots of racial, lots of tension amongst our airmen. Uh, what, what were you thinking this morning when you woke up? You know, I'll tell you, uh, probably like you and Tanya, Don and I were, were watching the events unfold last night, you know, well past midnight, and we were we were shocked, saddened. But I'll tell you, there was a one point where, where I also mentioned to Don, we probably don't completely understand it. Because you and I have had different life experiences growing up. You know, almost every room I've walked into has been full of me. And the systems that we operate in are sort of designed by me, for me. And so... I think the airmen and everyone will be really interested in sort of in your thoughts. I mean, as you and Tanya watched this unfold, I mean, what were your thoughts? Yeah, so, I, you know, I've been um, really outraged for uh, not just the last week, but but for, you know, it drew up a lot of a lot of rage and a lot of anger uh, from from the past because I've just watched this over and over and over again. And, mm -hmm. and uh, I not only see myself in George Floyd, I see my two sons, I see um, the young airmen in our Air Force. This, this could happen to, to any of us. I think I talked to you one time before about, you know, the fear I have when I'm driving down, whether it's the Beltway or any street around here, and I see blue lights because I think it doesn't matter if I'm the chief or, or whomever. Uh, and frankly, it doesn't really matter if I do everything right. right? I think uh, mm -hmm. I, I'd see some people that focus on, hey, if you just be polite and show your hands and, um, you know, you can still end up in this same situation. So uh, this has been a tough, tough week uh, for me, just kind of thinking about this and, 
and uh, my my greatest fear um, is not for myself. Uh, is is that I wake up one day and one of our airmen will be George Floyd or Tamir yeah. Rice or you know you you Philando Castile you you name the, yeah. the person. So uh, it's it's been tough, but but I also realized that. Um, one, it's okay for us to be angry. It's okay for me to, to be angry, but but at some point, uh, I then have to decide. Okay, what next? And what yeah. what should we be doing doing about it? What conversations should should we be having? Uh, I realize this is a tough race. Is a tough conversation for mm-hmm. a lot of us, for a lot of our commanders uh, out in the field. Um, you know, what would you recommend to to them in terms of how to talk about this with their airmen? Yeah, you know, it's it's about it's about creating a comfortable space to have this difficult difficult dialogue that very often because it's so difficult we avoid it. Mm-hmm. And it may be the one big opportunity that's been presented to us in this tragedy is to stop walking by the problem. Mm-hmm. And 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 how do we create that safe space to be have to be able to have a conversation at the right level, mm-hmm. because like you and I have been uh, focused throughout our tenure together, it's at that small unit level, it's at that squadron level where the most meaningful conversations are likely going to take place. And so, you know, how do we, I mean, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, how do we create a safe space for this discussion? And oh, by the way, this is not a one discussion. Right. We didn't get here overnight. We're not going to get better overnight. This is weeks and months of engagement at every echelon of command to create the safe space for greater understanding. I mean, any thoughts on, you know, what our command teams ought to be thinking about? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I hear commanders, you know, say all the time, I hear leaders, uh, commanders, chiefs, first sergeants say all the time that um, one of their strengths is the ability to have tough conversations and and whatnot. Well, now is the time to prove it, Mm -hmm. right? These conversations are difficult they're tough but they are necessary i mean you you have to be able to talk about this really you have to i I think uh, more than talk about it you got to be willing to listen um, to how how uh, our black airmen feel about not just this situation but how uh, they feel in general you know i think we should probably acknowledge too boss that um you know, even though events transpired pretty, pretty quickly uh, over the weekend, um, you know, we you and I were probably a little bit late, late to to need on uh, addressing this issue. Uh, I know our airmen have been waiting, waiting on us to talk about it. And, yeah. and, and uh, I'm glad that we're getting this opportunity to talk openly about uh, mm-hmm. something that's important to lots of our airmen. Yeah, I mean, I t- completely agree. And, uh, you know, if we can if we can all jump on this. Mm-hmm. If we can all seize this opportunity to have this conversation, to create the space that we need to get better as an institution. And the, the piece that you wrote over the weekend is powerful, powerful. And it's, it's classic chief, right? Getting to the heart of the issue and educating all of us on, uh, on an area that, that we all as leaders need to be better at. And I think if we all strive to do that, to gain better understanding, to understand our airmen, to acknowledge that we do have a problem in our Air Force that we have to get after, uh, that's, our, that's our role as leaders. Yes, sir. And uh, I'll tell you, I know I speak for uh, 
685,000 airmen who uh, are just thrilled that you're our chief. So thanks for that. Yes, sir. Thank you. Lots of work to be done. Amen. All right. And I think after that, that's when the the chief of staff came out with a statement, too. And he was there as a good confidant, as being the the right-hand man and being like, yes, I stand shoulder to shoulder with my brother. And I am ready to do what needs to do, what I need to do to make this right. And I think that's what we all should do. We should all do what we have in our power. We don't have the power to have all these different trainings and seminars, but we do have the power to be, to recognize where we are wrong, where we are exerting privilege when we shouldn't, where we're doing different things that are beneath what we are supposed to be as an American, as a veteran, as an active duty service member. And I I think that the reminder from, uh, Chief Master Sergeant Wright was beautiful. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, I think that's it for that yeah. conversation. Offer yeah. <laughs> little in there. Yeah, yeah. little in. And no, I just, it's like, there's not more. I feel like too, like there's a time to, I feel like I've been talking on it so much, but I just think just listening to mm-hmm. the people actually experience it is more powerful than anything I could ramble on about. I've done yeah. that enough already. Well, but, but I, and I yeah. also think everyone has a, a, an opportunity now to, to make a change in their, their own life. And especially as we, we speak to the people in the military through this podcast, if you're a leader in the military, you have an opportunity. And I saw a great message uh, from someone and it said, you know, don't wait for someone to be coming up to you and, and saying they're uncomfortable. Reach out to your people. Don't be afraid to reach out. Just say, hey, I just want, you know, I want to have a talk, check in, see how things are going. And this is not something that you just do this week and then, you know, yeah. two weeks from now you forget about periodically just check in with your people get get a, get a sense of the climate of what's going on in, in your squad in your platoon in your company in your troop whatever and then keep that conversation going no doubt about it let's move on to save rounds alibis kate we'll start with you well i don't know how to install my air conditioner and it's getting real moist in here mm-hmm. my crevices are ripe as i have said a few times you, before probably do you just have uh, like a, a, a wall unit, like a, a window unit rather? In New York City, you got to put in brackets so your AC unit doesn't fall and kill someone. Right. And so, but I don't know how to, I don't have a drill. I don't know. The whole thing's Can't very it be confusing. nice if you volunteer to go I was just going to gonna go say, help. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, take a, take, <laughs> take a picture, send me your address. I'll come help. I'll come help. <laughs> I'll get the crazy man downstairs to come in here. Okay. Well, if, if the crazy murdered, man is unavailable, yeah, yeah, if you get murdered, it's on me. But if no, he's no. unavailable, I'll come help you. But things are getting toasty in here. I'm kind of feeling. Then I gets murdered because Con will feel so bad about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> just live with that the rest of my life. Yeah. It's really all I got, though, I think. Like, you know, Kate's not here for the episode. wonder why that is, Con's. It's New York City has an 8 p.m. curfew right now. And like last night, I was But if you guys are good for two days, you get weekend limbo. Right. Weekend limbo. (laughs) Please give us the card. But it's very, it is, it's real kind of that I'm last night, 730. I was trying to write something all day, whatever. I was like, oh my God, it's 730. I have to run out and get stuff for dinner before eight o'clock. And I'm speed walking and the shop that I wanted to go to was closed. It was a little Did it feel like you were trying to get back to your apartment before colors? (laughs) Yes. It was. So I was trying, honest to God, it was my birthday. I was trying to buy a little bit of booze. Okay. There you go. I'm like, fuck, this liquor store is shut because all the stores that have to shut early. trying to buy booze? That's weird. So their employees can get home. So I'm I'm like speed walking through the neighborhood trying to find a bodega that's selling like some sort of whatever. And I'm like, oh my God, uh, 10 minutes till curfew. My car lemonade for the lady. Yeah, and I like got back in. Like, not that you know, not that at the crack of eight, the cops would have come and found like you know. But it's still this feeling because then everybody, it's like a western when there's about to be a 
all of a sudden everything's gone. The tumbleweed. Like a tumbleweed blowing down the street, <laughs> and the storm cloud rolled in, and like the streets were so quiet. And it's just hey, like a very new here. And to be a New Yorker, this huge city, and to know that we all have to be inside while the sun is still out. Like it's such a strange. And this isn't a com- not commentary on what's happening or anything. I'm just saying as an, an experience, Generally, it's strange. Yeah. It's, yes. an, it's surreal. It's a surreal experience. That's also that's what's going on on this end. So not really doing much this weekend because we can't really not much we could do. So boozy yeah. bikes. Maybe I might Ooh. get fucked up and ride around. Maybe a little boozy brunch <laughs> bike around. Hell yeah, Cons. What about you? Um, yeah, you know it's just you see the the country so divided too between the people who support President Trump and the people who are against President Trump. So what I would encourage, I I mentioned President Obama's statement that he made, but also President Bush made a statement as well. And what's interesting, it's like you have a Democratic president, you have a Republican president, and both of the statements kind of mirror one another. So, I I mean, that should just go to tell you, you know, what, what you should be doing here and how you should be acting. So I encourage everyone to go read both of those statements, regardless of how you identify as a, a political person. Uh, and just get yourself educated on that. Um, one thing I thought, I got to give it to the protests here in New York City. I was walking down Fifth Ave the other day and I walked maybe about 20 blocks worth of this protest and thousands of people in the street, which is also a very weird thing to see. Uh, similar to what Kate said, people going to bed at eight o'clock. But to see that many people in a main street in New York City is very, very weird. But they, they're road guards, man. They were on I would like to remind point. Kate that Chow is not continuous on the podcast. <laughs> While she uh, takes a bite of a uh, scone or something. It's food that you sent me, bro. <laughs> but you're right. The road guards Road situation. guards are impressive. <laughs> mm-hmm. Road no. guards post. Um, and then uh, lastly, I got I got two rounds of golf scheduled for this weekend. I'm pretty oh, excited nice. about that. Mm. Yeah. So Love that's Kate all I got. W- Kate would go golfing, but she's got Firewatch for eating on <laughs> – the podcast, which really stinks after a birthday weekend. That really sucks. Um, I, my save round is I want to draw. I've been really cognizant lately. I think after Monday's podcast of my analogies and it makes me feel embarrassed um, that I do it all the time. I'm sorry, I, that I do do point. it all the time, but now I'm just like aware of it, but I'm going to do it again anyways. So I think that with what we're seeing in the country right now, it reminds me a lot of forcedization. Like where when I was younger, I there was this little there's this little patch of grass that I used to play roller hockey by. Me and my buddies would go oh, play roller man. hockey. I'm settling in. Love I love roller <laughs> hockey, but so I'm in. I'm in on this story. Let's go. So, you know, whenever you're playing road hockey, whenever your pavement gets repaved, it's beautiful, right? Like so you mm, have this perfect. brand new smooth black asphalt that is just perfect for skating you could set your net out there you could do whatever we would go out there and play for hours little six dollar sticks a little orange ball we were out there well it was in the summertime we were out for school and i brought some fireworks from my house and i brought them out there and me and a couple buddies we were setting off some fireworks and with like bottle rockets and pop caps and things like that you light them and then you throw them well one time i lit the fireworks i threw it into the field and the entire field, I'm talking like three or four acres, caught on fire. And there was a huge fire. A guy had to come out. One of the neighbors had to come out and like water his fence so the, the fire wouldn't breach into his privacy fence and things like that. I was terrified. I, I ran home when it was on fire, told my mom somebody else did it, that I happened to see it, that we were out there. We happened to see it. We didn't know what happened. Well, it was me that did it. And I thought, I was like, man, this place is going to be ruined forever. Eventually, I told my mom the, the true story, that I did it 
she made me call the fire department and tell them that I did it and that they wanted to come out and talk to fire safety. And we had like a fire safety with me and all my friends. And I looked at this field and I thought, you know, this field is fucking destroyed now. Like, I don't know how long this is going to be until it's nice again. And that's what I see whenever I look around the country. Every time you turn on the TV, every time you look at social media, you see these fields burning. And it looks like something that will never get past and will never get through. But months later, through slash and burn, the field came back. The, The grass was thicker and things were much better. I hope that that's the slash and burn that's happening in America, that we peel back some of the layers of racism and they go away. It's not going to be something that takes a short period of time. It's something that is going to, it's caused a lot of pain. So it's going to take some pain to make it go away. And I hope that we realize that the field is on fire. Let's make the fire worthwhile and grow back stronger than ever before. Sound the original.